Our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. And then we will continue our reading in the book of Acts. Lectio continua, if you like the Latin. That's what we do here. We read through a book of scripture and preach through it and follow the work of God's spirit and apostles in giving the church his truth. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray for the illuminating work of your spirit for every heart and mind. We pray that we would hear your word. Hearing it, we pray we would understand it. Understanding, we pray we would believe it. Believing it, we pray we would understand it. O Lord, reform us by it. Let us not be like a man who looked in the mirror and and quickly forgot what he saw of his own image. Grant us to see the image of Christ. Grant us to be conformed unto it. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, 
unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of God. Beloved, who is the evangelist in this morning's passage? Who is seeking the lost? Who is seeking the darkened soul? that is far from God, who's running with the good news, who is running with such good news that the runner's feet must forever be called beautiful, just as it is called in Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says in Zion, your God reigns. Who is it? Who is the evangelist of today's scripture? Well, I propose there are three. Three evangelists. The third becomes an evangelist because he follows the lead of the second. The second has become an evangelist because he followed the lead of the first. And the first, well... He has always been an evangelist. He is the Lord God, our evangelizing Savior God, our missionary God, the God of Jonah, the God of the garden. He is the evangelist who, in fact, sets this whole scene on the road from Jerusalem down to Gaza in motion. It is the Lord his zeal to save sinners from the remotest parts of the earth. Remember Acts 1.8? It is the Lord's zeal to save that drives everything unfolding on this road. The text says in verse 26, the angel of the Lord directs Philip, urges Philip to get up and do the work of an evangelist. The Lord of this angel is Jesus Christ. He is enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven. It is from there that he conducts this evangelistic endeavor 
upon the earth through his servants, through his angel. He sends his angel to impose his evangelistic zeal on the church. Do you see that? This is one of the main ministries of angels. Yes, they protect the church from evil. That is clearly taught and beautifully taught in several scriptures, Matthew 18 perhaps being the best. But they also press the church, not just protect her. They press the church into the service of Christ to redeem the nations with the message of God's salvation. So angels press this work upon us because they are simply doing what you and I should be doing. They're doing their master's bidding. It is Christ who first and foremost desires a harvest of souls. Philip is obeying divine orders. He's not writing the orders. Christ is the lead evangel. The words have come down from him. So I want you to never forget something as we begin this passage this morning. Never forget what you're seeing here. What does Jesus in heaven want the church on earth to do? He wants us to harvest the souls of men for his praise and for his honor. Don't leave off the last bit. He wants us to harvest the souls of men, not so they can return to sin as pardoned thugs. No, he wants us to harvest the souls of men for his praise, for his honor. And the harvest he himself has already prepared. Philip is caught up in the most, in the easiest evangelical encounter in the history of evangelical encounters. Wouldn't you love it? The Lord knocks on your door one morning and says, hey, there's a guy going to be at Chick-fil-A this afternoon. Oh, that's too easy. Hey, there's a guy going to be at the bar tonight at 1 a.m. I want you to go there. I want you to come out and stand in the front door. And as he comes out and throws up everything he's been drinking for the last three hours, I want you to stay with him and talk to him. Very similar to what's happening here. Lift up your eyes, Jesus said, and see that the fields are white for harvest. John 4.35, who has whitened them? The Lord of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, he said. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his his harvest. Matthew 9.37, will these prayers not be answered? Beloved, Jesus Christ is an evangelist. He will not leave his churches to be other than evangelists. The great work of the church in this age is not political. It is not even cultural. The great work of the church is missional and doxological. Missional because Christ sends us into the world, not counting their trespasses against them, but imploring them to be reconciled to God through Christ's blood. But our work is also doxological because the purpose of mission is not mission. 
The purpose of mission is worship. Sinners are to be reconciled because Christ is to be praised and honored and obeyed by a people he is setting apart for his holy name. The very name he has put on you in your baptism. He calls you to live up to that name. That's why he has saved you from your sin and the devil's power. So let us never forget the zeal of the Lord Jesus himself from heaven for mission and for doxology. As he imposes his will upon his church, this is what he wants from us. The pursuit of the evangelist is high among the good works he has prepared for us to do. In some way, he will either have us support it or be the tip of the spear in it. Now, I want you to consider this Ethiopian eunuch who is to be gathered to Christ. It is the will of God that he be so. It will not fail. This should give every Calvinist in the room a very high level of optimism. Beloved, if you're a Calvinist, like the man behind the pulpit, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, that God rules over everything, even the most difficult, light, momentary aggravation that you experience in the kitchen between 640 and 645, your Keurig is clogged. If you are a Calvinist and you believe everything is under the rule of a sovereign God, you should be the most optimistic person on the earth about the harvest of souls. None will fail. All will be gathered. And they will be gathered by obedient sons and daughters who have already been gathered. On the day Philip meets this eunuch, the text tells us he had just finished his visit to Jerusalem. He had come up from Ethiopia in northern Africa to worship the God of the Jews. Whether he himself had been born a Jew or was converted and was a Jewish proselyte, we aren't told. It's very likely he's just a black Afrikaner who has been converted. Ethiopia is often identified in Scripture as the land of Cush. It was a very significant country, ruled by a king, but a king that people hardly ever spoke to. Publicly, Ethiopia, ancient Ethiopia, was run by the queen mother. She engaged the people, and she engaged diplomats from other nations. So whoever was queen mother at any given time in Ethiopia, she was called the Candace. It was a title, not a name. It was more like Pharaoh than Mary or Elizabeth. The Candace was the top tier tier of Ethiopian government and power. This eunuch then, who came up to Jerusalem, was the chief financial officer of Ethiopia. He lived in luxury. He had liberties others never knew. He was a powerful man. He was a wealthy man. And this little story should help you always understand one little word in Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he said, 
Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were wise. Many. He didn't say not all. Here is one of the noble, the wise, the mighty, the elite. And he too is brought to the level ground of the cross. So, this wealthy, powerful man has a copy of the scroll of Isaiah in his chariot. This is like being the first one with an iPad. It was expensive to have a copy of a scroll of Isaiah. You couldn't just go buy those in a store. You had to hire a highly ranked and rated scribe to give you and make for you a copy. But there he has one, and he is reading it. Most likely it was the Greek translation, the LXX, the Septuagint. And I hope you take some encouragement, at the very least, of how this scene endorses private reading of Scripture. How blessed is the man who seeks the Lord in his word, not just in hearing a public sermon, but in the private reading of Scripture. But we're going to learn that it does not vacate the need for the teaching office of the church because he does not understand what he is reading. But we should not overlook the fact that he's reading Scripture and he is blessed by God. Let me ask you, if you have never been visited by Jesus Christ yet, do not overlook what's happening in this passage. If Jesus Christ has never come to you yet and opened your heart to his glory, start where this man is starting. Go home and start reading your Bible. Go home and start reading the Gospel of John. I encourage you to go home and read and pray and ask me even, and I will pray for you. Well, let's go back to this. What does Luke want us to see? Luke, the author of Acts, if you didn't notice this in the first reading, Luke does not place a very heavy emphasis at all on this man being an Ethiopian. He does, however, place great emphasis on this man being a eunuch. Five different times in this passage, Luke calls him the eunuch, and only one time does he call him the Ethiopian. What then is the significance of this man being a eunuch? Well, according to the law of Israel, a eunuch was forbidden entry into the assembly of God's people. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 reads, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That is a description of a eunuch. Eunuchs were outcasts in Israel. The ceremonial law marked them as deeply blemished, unfit to draw near to God or to serve God like other men of Israel could. Now, in the ancient world, outside of Israel, it was common to find eunuchs because they did not have the law. By thousands, you could find eunuchs. No, by tens of thousands, you could find eunuchs. No, by hundreds of thousands, you could find eunuchs in the ancient world. The scholarship on the history of eunuchs is full if you want to search for it. 
Men surgically made themselves eunuchs, or their parents made them eunuchs, or their master owners made them eunuchs. The idea was they could serve in a high position of power if they were castrated. Why? Because eunuchs were considered politically safe. Because they could not produce children, because of that, they were thought safe from greed and a lust for dynasty creation. Therefore, they could be trusted with the king's wealth. And because they could not commit sexual immorality, they were thought safe to work in a king's house, among his wives, among his children, his daughters. Esther 1 tells us King Ahasuerus had seven eunuchs who simply served him in his bedroom. Get that, put that down. Daniel 1 tells us that Daniel and his three friends were under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar's chief eunuch, Ashpenaz. And 2 Kings 20, what a verse this is. Isaiah there tells Hezekiah the dreadful news that some of Hezekiah's own offspring, his grandsons, will be taken into exile and made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The dots are never connected, whether that includes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it very well may have. But what is happening in our text? What is happening to this Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza? Is the king of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, sending a messenger to track down this eunuch heading back home to threaten him, to tell him to never come back to Jerusalem, to announce disgust over him? Of course not. The king of kings enthroned in heaven comes to bring a eunuch from a foreign country into the true temple of God, into the true dwelling place of God, into the Lord's risen body. Didn't Jesus say, tear down this temple and I will raise it again in three days? Where do men meet now with God in the fullness of time? In Jesus Christ. We are seeing it happen in verse 30 through 38. By word and by sacrament, the Holy Spirit comes to lead this eunuch into the true temple, Jesus Christ. The word will be taught to him, the waters of baptism poured upon him, and together both word and sacrament will testify God's salvation to him, that he belongs in the salvation of God in Christ that all eunuchs, in fact, whom God is calling can come all the way into the temple of God, who is Jesus Christ. So let us understand, through Philip, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is pursuing one who was far off, an outcast, and bringing him near to God. And how near is he bringing this eunuch? as near as Christ himself is near. Remember what we heard in Isaiah 56.5. It was a promise to all eunuchs who will believe. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. 
I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's what the Lord said specifically to the eunuch. Those who could not have children themselves are given in Christ a name better than sons and daughters. What is that name? Christian. Belonging to Christ. It is a name we are given in our baptism when we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The very baptism that was administered in water off the side of the road for this Ethiopian eunuch. Blessed in God forever are all who believe that word that God has spoken to them in their baptism when he gave them his name. Now, it is very important that we see that it is not just the sacrament that God brings to this eunuch. Before the sacrament of baptism takes place, there is a substantial ministry of the word. Do you see that? There is a converting ministry of the word using the prophet Isaiah. Look what happens. When Philip arrives on this scene, the eunuch is reading aloud from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit tells Philip, go over, get close to the chariot. So Philip, you know, he has to run a little faster. You can almost see him huffing and puffing. He swerves over, he gets close to the chariot that's carrying the eunuch, and Philip is now able to hear. And what does he hear? He hears the eunuch reading from the scroll of Isaiah aloud. And immediately Philip knows that the reading is what he is there to speak about. Do you understand what you are reading, says the running Philip. How can I unless someone guides me, replies the eunuch. And in a moment, he invites Philip up into the chariot to discuss the text. And what passage of scripture are they going to discuss? Isaiah 53, the very heart of the fourth servant song of Isaiah, the fourth and final servant song of Isaiah, the sufferings and humiliation of the servant of the Lord. The specific verses of Isaiah, which Luke places here in Acts 8, 32 and 33, are taken from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. These two verses foretell the ministry of Jesus Christ written by Isaiah 800 years before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. They tell these verses how Jesus did not resist or complain or regret his sufferings. He went into them deliberately, willingly, purposefully, not accidentally, not regrettably. He offered himself up, Isaiah 53 makes clear. He patiently endured humiliation, being made an outcast himself, is what Isaiah reveals. Treated as a sinner, cut off from Israel, though being the perfect, unblemished Israelite. 
He bore in his own body, Isaiah tells us, the judgments of God that rightly belonged upon other men. But he stepped in as their substitute, willingly becoming a curse for us. That's what you find in Isaiah 53. That's what the eunuch is reading. Now, the eunuch, when he's first reading all of this, doesn't understand who is being spoken about. He wonders aloud to Philip, who is Isaiah speaking of? Is he speaking of himself or of some of someone else? Which is a very fair question, especially in the servant songs. Because the first servant song seems to really be speaking about the nation of Israel until it's not, and it's speaking of Christ. Philip hears the question, and he knows exactly what to do. Look at verse 35. Acts chapter 8. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Look at verse 35, if you haven't looked at it already, and hear it again. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. Right in Isaiah 53, Philip begins moving back and forth throughout the scriptures of the Old Testament, using them to reveal to the eunuch the salvation of God in Jesus Christ, and that the salvation of God was always there in the Old Testament scriptures, that it would come through his own son. In fact, the Old Testament is a revelation of Jesus. The Old Testament is a revelation of the promised mediation of God's Son to save sinners. And beloved, this is what the Bible is about. What you see Philip doing with his Bible right here in verse 35 is what you should always want to be doing with your Bible. Listen very carefully, please. Your Bible is not a manual on how to make America better in the 21st century. Your Bible is about the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. You and I both have met Christians who would not want the ministry that Philip brings to the eunuch. Come on, tell me something I I don't know already. (coughs) We push Philip aside. And look for somebody who can open the Bible and bring us to a frothy rage against the wicked of our age. Beloved, do not ever forget verse 35. It is what the scriptures are about. You are not reading the Bible well if you do not find in it everywhere a road that leads you right to Jesus Christ. When you are reading the Bible privately, you should be looking for the good news of Jesus Christ, whether you're in Exodus, Leviticus, or Job, or 1 Corinthians, or Revelation. When you are coming to a sermon, you should be wanting to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, whether the sermon is from the Ten Commandments that day or not. We cannot even preach the law correctly unless we have preached alongside of it, woven through it, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
beloved, this is what your Bible is about. It's about the same thing Philip's Bible is about. The good news, the salvation of God to sinners in Jesus Christ. Now, where did Philip, do you think, learn to do this? He learned this from the apostles. And where did the apostles learn it? They learned it from the Lord Jesus Christ on another road. You see, there was a day, it was a dark day, the day that our Lord was crucified. And there were two travelers on another road moving away from Jerusalem. And on that same road, another evangelist came to those travelers, just like in our text. And his name was Jesus. But he was in disguise. He was hidden from them for a while. And he did the very same thing with those two travelers on the road to Emmaus as Philip does here. He opened the scriptures to them, participated in a sacramental act, and then disappeared and left them rejoicing. The similarities are absolutely uncanny. The Lord is showing us in this passage that the Ethiopian mutilated eunuch is also now being visited by Christ in the same way he visited his disciples on the road to Emmaus and drawing them into the same discovery of all the scriptures. That's what Jesus did On the Emmaus Road, he opened all the scriptures, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and revealed that they were all speaking about him and the good news of God's salvation through him. Now, I just want to wrap this up today by looking at one more verse with you, and that is verse 39. It says in verse 39, right at the end, of the eunuch, that he went on his way rejoicing. He went on his way rejoicing. I'm going to separate that statement into two parts. He went on his way rejoicing. On his way to where? Back to Jerusalem? Not at all. On his way home to Ethiopia. Not back to Jerusalem to worship. In fact, not back to Jerusalem ever again to worship. He had been there his last time. This, I am persuaded, is the main reason that Luke decides to include this event at this point in the book of Acts, right after many believers in Samaria have come to Christ. Right after Philip's ministry in Samaria, we have this ministry to an Ethiopian who has just come to Jerusalem to worship and is now physically moving away from Jerusalem. What should we be thinking? We should be thinking about our Lord's meeting a Samarian woman at a well where she challenged him about the place of worship. Remember, she said, you Jews believe that you should worship in Jerusalem. We believe that you should worship on Mount Gerizim. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? He ended the debate. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Neither in Jerusalem nor in Mount Gerizim. The Ethiopian eunuch is finishing the expansion of the gospel into Samaria and all of its false beliefs about true worship. This Ethiopian is moving away from Jerusalem because the Lord is closing Jerusalem up. It can no longer be a place for true worship. The veil has been rent from the top to the bottom. (coughs) Christ has carried the blood of the new covenant into into a heavenly temple. This Ethiopian eunuch will be far from Jerusalem, but not far from Jesus Christ. He will serve Jesus Christ, worship Jesus Christ. He will be in full communion with God. He will be giving God everything he owes to God. He will be receiving all communion from God through Jesus Christ in the court of Candace. He will live as a Christian in full communion and worship of God, far from the brick and mortar of Jerusalem, because Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the law. And now all men have all of God in all the Son. But the second part of verse 39, he went on his way rejoicing. What kind of joy is this? This is not the joy of being a eunuch. This is not the joy of the flesh's mutilation. We can be sure that being a eunuch has caused caused this man grief and sorrow many times, especially every time he went up to Jerusalem and was reminded when he got there that God's law declared him unfit for the full privileges of an Israelite. The joy of verse 39 is not the joy of being a eunuch. Nor is this the joy of being important in Ethiopia or being wealthy. This man had learned, like Naaman the leper, that riches do not buy entrance into the kingdom of God. What then was this rejoicing that carried the eunuch home to Ethiopia as the newest evangelist? in the Gentile lands of the world. It was the joy of salvation, beloved. Do you know it? It was the joy of once being far off, but not being brought near, excuse me, but now being brought near by the blood of Christ. Beloved, this joy comes from the Holy Spirit. It is the Christian's greatest joy, the joy of salvation. It starts new churches and faraway lands, this joy, because it is beyond suppression. It cannot be stopped. It's like trying to put wind in a box. This is the joy of the Spirit of God that comes in the salvation of God. If you are a Christian and something other than this joy, is the greatest joy in your life. 
it is because you have forgotten that which you have been saved from. You could probably put it on a test, but it doesn't shine in your heart. Is something else your great joy? Is your greatest joy something that does not require the blood of Christ? If so, you are deeply confused and have drifted very far from the law of God and the gospel of Christ. If something else is your greatest joy that does not require the blood of Christ, beloved, it's because you think you are better than you are, and the law has not rested upon your conscience in its true weight. It has not recently condemned you. The truth is, you and I have not kept a single one of the Ten Commandments. And if we were measured by God just on our Christian behavior in the last 24 hours, there would be enough to accuse us and condemn us to hell if we were outside of Christ. You've forgotten that. If your greatest joy is not the joy of your salvation and you have forgotten the gospel, you've not thought, and that's usually the problem, right? We stop thinking about what Christ has done for us, what he has suffered for us, how zealous he was to come and seek and save the lost. We would never have found him in a million years, in a thousand worlds, You could be reconstituted as every person who has ever lived. You would never find Christ unless he would come and find you first and open your heart with his spirit to see the glory of his body on the cross, to see the glory of his resurrection in the sky. Beloved, if you are a Christian, the greatest joy of your life is being welcomed into the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. To have once been far from God, with no privileges in God, to have once been an outcast, a lawbreaker, a transgressor, to have once been an orphan in the world ruled by the devil, now to be saved and given the name, child of God, Christian, that should be your greatest joy. Think about it. Believe it. Pray that God would restore it. Because you and I, we may not have the chariot of this eunuch, but we have the sin of the eunuch. We have the pedigree of the eunuch. We have the unfit, unblemished heritage of the eunuch. Beloved, we also have the joy of the eunuch. And we are to bring that joy into our soul and let it give us all the strength needed in serving, praising, and honoring the one who has redeemed us. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you, we praise you, that you sought us and sent someone with beautiful feet to set the gospel upon our ear, to make plain what was in a fog, to straighten what was crooked in our mind. And you, Lord, cleared it up under the ministry of the evangelist who came to us.
Lord, we praise you and thank you for we would not be saved today confident in Christ, ready for death, ready for your tribunal, serving you in life, resting in you in death. We would not be ready unless you came and fetched us when we were in a fog of confusion and unbelief. We thank you that you did for us what you did for this eunuch. We pray, O Lord, that you would restore in any of us who have need the joy of our salvation and increase and abound us in this joy, even if we have never been so weighty in it. And Lord, may it be like a fuel in us to carry us all the way to our home, all the way to the vocation that your providences have assigned to us in the world, no matter whom we serve or what we have or have not. May the joy of our salvation, we pray, O Lord, in Jesus Christ, carry us home to do your will, to testify of how merciful the Lord has been to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.